I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. Well, hello, gentlemen. Hello, Jesse. Hello, Chris uh, and uh, Jesse. Yeah. Which hello, Dennis. The, the gentleman. Yes. <laughs> uh, salutations. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm going to start starting my emails with salutations because I've learned a new I word a, here. A new greeting word in Italy is salve. You know, like salve regina. Oh. Ciao. Apparently, ciao is a word you say like, hi. You talk to dogs and little kids and close friends that way. Buonasera or buongiorno is like, good day. But if it's a stranger on the street, you say, salve. You know, like, it's like, how? So, salve. Wow. So, that's how what? I it, include my distance, emotional distance from you. Salve. Mm. Jesse. Yeah. <laughs> you can use that with your wives when you're mad at them. So, you need hi, to have at least salve. six. How many wives do you have, Jesse? <laughs> just one. You just, you need to have six feet of emotional distance to yeah. uh, survive this <laughs> pandemic, I think. Um, anyway, we we are uh, we are on the cusp of uh, some really great liturgical things. I know we talked about uh, what what Easter is going to look like during the pandemic a couple of weeks mm-hmm. ago, um, but we have a very our, our most important liturgical season uh, on the cusp here, and there's a lot that we want to talk about. And uh, Chris, you had some things that you wanted to point out as we approach this liturgical season. So, what, what do you got for us? But I think well, I should interrupt you, Chris. Oh. <laughs> because this is why this came up. Because I'm here in Florence, right? So last weekend was we call the fifth Sunday of Lent, but I went to the Mass here in the Extraordinary Form, run by the Institute of Christ the King. So I look it up, fifth week of Lent, and it says Passion Sunday. And I was confused because I always thought Passion Sunday was Palm Sunday, which would be the sixth week of Lent. And then I said to Chris, what's this all about? And I started reading about it, and I thought we'd talk about that a little bit. Okay, now, Chris, what do you have to say? All right, so Dennis <laughs> wants credit for this entire episode. Now that we got that out of the way. Well, uh, coupled with that is in uh, the March Adoramus Bulletin. We had Father Aaron Williams, alum of the Liturgical Institute and a priest <sighs> of Ch- Jackson, Mississippi. He wrote something that uh, goes, goes uh, quite well with this. So... Now, you know this, Dennis, from teaching uh, liturgical movement classes and other things like that. But so in 1951, uh, uh, Pius XII uh, introduced by way of experiment uh, what he called the restored Easter Vigil. And that seemed to go pretty well. Right. So in 1955, what were the issues well, I think some of the issues were is that it was, it was celebrated in the morning, for example. Mm-hmm. Can you it's, imagine uh, Easter Vigil at eight o'clock in the morning? Talking yeah, about light and darkness and it's like the sunrise. Well, you'd celebrate it, but I think some of the, the uh, I don't know all the details, but like some of the more joyous things, like maybe the Gloria and other things were omitted because it wasn't quite Easter yet. And so you get, oh. then you get done with the vigil and then you'd go into Saturday, which is a day of penance until the next day. So there, there was some ritual things. There were some time things and whatnot. So in 1951, by way of experiment, he... 
tried the restored vigil. And then in 1955, he restored the, the entire Holy Week. And principally, this was about getting the, uh, these days to be, these liturgies to be celebrated at their appropriate time. Right, so Mass of the Lord's Supper in the evening, uh, the Good Friday liturgy in the afternoon, the Easter vigil uh, at night. But there were some other ceremonial things as well. And so as far as I knew, and maybe tell me what you think, Dennis, all I knew was that this happened, but I didn't really actually know what the celebration of the vigil was like in before 1955 or any of these other things before 1955. So one no, of the good things about... Oh, yeah. Sorry. Even today's extraordinary form, which uses the 1962 missile, would not have the pre-1955 Easter celebrations, correct? Well, this is what's interesting, is that apparently, see, and this, this is one of the things I learned. It, it's great being the editor of Adoramus because if I, there's something I want to read about uh, that don't know about, I just ask somebody to write it for me, and then I learn about it. So <laughs> then I don't have to do all the research. I just do. I just learn from them. What Father Williams says is that, so if you were going to use, according to Summorum Pontificum, in the extraordinary form, uh, you would be using the 1962 Missal. All right, so that order of Holy Week would be about seven years old, right? Because it was restored in 1955. So I gather that uh, some places, many places, more and more places are interested in not only doing the Holy Week from 1962, but from the pre-1955 restoration, right? So conceivably now, you could go to Holy Week and have it celebrated as if it were 1954, or 1962, or 2011. So there's three different versions. Is that listed what, though? I thought uh -huh. Summorum Pontificum said it had to be the 62 books. Or it, am I wrong? Summorum Pontificum did, but uh, apparently you can get, uh, you have to get an indult. You have to get permission ah, to do that. And uh, these have been granted. And so, uh, so if you, Dennis, if you were going to go to Holy Week, um, at your place in Florence there. I, it'd be interesting to note, you know, which, which version they use, the one from the 62 mm -hmm. Missal or its pre-1955 uh, revision. So, okay. Anyway, so between uh, Dennis's, uh, uh, you know, question about the beginning of uh, uh, Passion Sunday, Passion Tide, I think, and then Father Williams' uh, little article here about uh, these various Holy Weeks, we thought, you know, this, 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 is, this is good to know, not, you know, so you can try to, shoehorn foreign items into and make some sort of hybrid liturgy. But I mean, to know where your rights come from uh, is, is a good thing to know. And so that's why we wanted to talk about some of these things uh, today. You got to know your rights. If, you're, your if rights. you're an American, you got to know your rights. got to know your rights. We got to fight for the right to the 55 <laughs> missile. <laughs> All right. So what, what are we going to focus on first? Well, let's, let's well, I think look at... The, oh, go ahead, Chris. Well, I think we're going to say the same thing. Before we get to Palm Sunday, let's start with this uh, Passion Sunday. What did, you, what did you learn about there, Dennis? Well, apparently before Vatican II, there was a two-week preparation for Easter called Passion Tide, which was a, kind of like a little mini liturgical season that started two weeks before Sunday. And it um, was abolished in 1969 with the current missile. But apparently it still hangs around in um, like the, some of the personal ordinariates and the extraordinary form and some Anglicans and Lutherans. And uh, it had picked up a lot of um, ideas over the years. It was called a Judea, Jude, what is it, Judica May Sunday because the first um, entrance into fun was the judge me, oh Lord. But the interesting thing is there was a different 
gospel reading. And it was about Christ talking about, you know, if you had known what Moses said, then you would understand he was talking about me. And they get all mad and they want to stone him at the temple. And it says, then he slipped away and was hidden from their sight. And so that is the reason why what happens on the fifth Sunday of Lent, where Jesus disappears. Can you think of anything, Jesse? Maybe Chris knows. Did you go to Mass last Sunday, Jesse? Yes, of course. <laughs> uh, but what did actu- you notice? Well, actually, I was uh, I was taking care of some Isaac issues during the, uh, uh, and our and our homily was not about those readings, so I had missed it twice. Um, our, the the homily was on the scrutinies that uh, the candidates were going through. So, well, but forget about uh, the homilies. Did did you notice anything different in the church with your eyes? It oh, may are you not talking, happen at your well, church. No, no, no. That I know what you're talking about. That didn't happen, but uh, uh, but I know people cover statues and things like that. Right, right. So we do that on the fifth Sunday of Lent, but nobody really knows why. It's because this, you know, we have Laetari Sunday is the fourth Sunday. The fifth Sunday had a name, which is this Judica Sunday, um, and because of the the entrance into Font, and because Jesus slipped away from their midst, it also became the way the time that you cover the statues. Now, I always thought that that was some kind of, you know, visual discipline, this sort of like fasting for the eyes so that when you get them back on Easter, it's all the more delightful, which is probably true. But there is actually uh, a timing for it. And there's all different kinds of names. They called it Black Sunday in Germany because they covered things with black um, fabric. Also in Scotland, it was named, they would eat some kind of peas. I think they're called Carlins and they called it Carlin Sunday. Yeah, that's what it was in England and Scotland. Mm. They would eat Carlin peas with butter on this Sunday and became Carlin Sunday. So, you know, we have a few of those names. And now we have, of course, Divine Mercy Sunday and we have Latari Sunday. But our Sundays used to have names, not just numbers. And so I just found that interesting why they would get rid of this thing that's obviously quite old. And it's very similar to what you're saying, Chris. They, this restoration, this term restoration is very interesting. It's not just, you know, plain old renovation, but they seem to think that something was lost and the ancient church had to be found again. So they would actually abolish this two-week thing and move Passion Sunday to Palm Sunday. Yeah. Now, I didn't know much about this either. Uh, so I read, uh, yeah, so we should say this up front. I've, I've never been to the pre-1955 uh, <laughs> Holy Week. I don't think, I've never even been to the Extraordinary Form uh, celebration of Holy Week. So again, uh, this is not ex- from experience, uh, at least from which I'm talking. So I read a little bit uh, also, uh, um, you know, that uh, pious Parsh, Dennis, you remember him, uh, the Austrian mm-hmm. liturgical the, movement? The year guy, of grace. Uh, what, 30s, 40s? Yes. And so I looked on what he said about uh, uh, Passion Sunday, and he explained that, you know, the, the calendar had been, you had this pre-Lenten season called Septuagesima, these weeks leading up to Ash Wednesday. Then you had the Lenten season. Then you had a third sort of Lenten season, which was this Passion season. And I think, um, you know, to something you mentioned before is, you know, well, why did they get rid of this? Well, maybe they thought it was just too complicated. Do you need three Lents? Do you need three Lenten seasons to get to, to Easter? Well, and, you know, obviously people uh, have different opinions about that. Some, maybe the simplification is better. Uh, others, you know, maybe some things got lost along the way. But the other thing that he says, Dennis, about this uh, Passion Sunday and the covering of the crosses is he suggests, and you're an art historian, so maybe you can speak to this, is that maybe. in the uh, grand old days of the patristic church, the early church, um, 
the the crosses that they used were simply crosses without a corpus. And most they were, of the time, that's right. Most okay, and they were very decorative, and they had jewels, and uh, uh, they were very valuable, and they were sparkling and things like that. And it wasn't until maybe more medieval period where uh, more realistic human depictions of uh, the the body of Christ uh, bleeding in, in in agony came to be introduced. But he says the other thing that's relative to this covering of the crosses, in addition to that gospel passage about Jesus going to hide himself, was that originally these crosses were these great works of art and beauty and glory and splendor and radiance and things like that. And so that the covering was, as you were suggesting earlier, Dennis, it was kind of this I think I've heard this expression for kind of a fast uh, from the eyes, you know, mm -hmm. that these beautiful things are now going undercover until the, the glorious resurrection uh, occurs. But anyway, that's what who, who knew that uh, postmodern architecture was also kind of like a fasting for the eyes. <laughs> <laughs> There's a difference between fasting and starving, Jesse. So oh, starving, <laughs> starving us is different from choosing to fast. That's a good one. I'll, no, that's going you. down. That's going down in the record books for uh, uh, yeah. podcast podcast jokes. I, I owe that to Doctor Fagerberg for that distinction. He didn't make a joke about it, but he did make that distinction. And so, from what I understand, too, that um, Cardinal Bonini and others in the Reform period wanted to bring back some of the particular Sunday readings that were older. So, the Man Born Blind was one one of the Sundays. The Good Samaritan was one of the Sundays, and then. What was Passion Week got brought into Holy Week, essentially. And But what you're saying, Chris, some of this happened before um, Bunini in 1969 and the current Missal that I guess Pius XII had already called it something like the Sunday, the second, called Palm Sunday the second Passion Sunday. And then John mm -hmm. 20, the 23rd called it the uh, first Sunday of the Passion. And then finally, by 1969, they had already been fiddling with this for a while. I mean, people love to blame Cardinal Benini for all kinds of things, but he didn't just I show think up. He was in a that. cardinal incident. Uh, sorry, Archbishop. Right, Benini, was he yeah. Archbishop? Yeah, yeah. Um, that he didn't just um, come up and do these things. No, whether you think they were wise or not is another question. But he wasn't just making these up from nowhere. There had been discussing them. Uh, oh, actually, what is Pius XII said the sixth Sunday of Lent was the second Sunday of the Passion or Palm Sunday. So there was the so first Sunday sending the Passion, which is the fifth <laughs> Sunday. Then there's the second Sunday of the Passion. And you can see oh, after a while, if you're trying to clean up the calendar, you would say, well, this is kind of, you know, unruly. Now, did it bring with it all kinds of layers of complexity and richness and symbolic meaning? Sure. Were those lost? Absolutely. I guess, you know, it's, we'll leave it to others to decide if it was a worthy change or not. Yeah, well, I think, you know, in all of this is a, a certain uh, amount of complexity and mystery uh, and the rest is good. But when it becomes too, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, incomprehensible and doesn't allow the people to understand what's going on, well, then it becomes bad. Now, what's the what's the formula for getting that right? Uh, still still trying to figure that out. But let me let me. Um, so this is let me let me give you some examples of what Palm Sunday was like in 1954 versus in 1955. Again, okay. just as an example of this principle. And again, I am on the this, edge this, of my seat, Chris. This, I think, is pretty interesting. Uh, and again, this is all from were Father... You guys, uh, were you guys both born in that? I just want to know. No. Uh, no. no. <laughs> Jesse, young whippersnapper. No. So, uh, again, this is all from Father Aaron Williams. I don't have any first-hand knowledge of this. And he actually said... He, there's a, a site 
he, he gives uh, to the new liturgical movement, there's this compendium of 1955 changes. So anybody, if anybody wants to read this in Adoramus or new liturgical movement, uh, please do so. Okay, but this is what uh, Palm Sunday was like or whatever it was called <laughs> on, uh, uh, before the 1955 uh, revision. So there were, uh, as Father Williams describes it, in essence, two sorts of masses. The one was called the dry mass of the palms. And usually, he said, uh, in the initially this was uh, would take place at St. John Lateran, and then there would be this uh, uh, procession um, to actually from St. Lawrence outside the walls is where this dry mass happened, and then there's this procession to St. John Lateran. But at this first sort of mass in quotes, uh, what happened? So there was an introit. There was an opening prayer. There was a reading. There was a psalm or a gradual and the gospel, just like it were mass. Exactly that. And then after that, after the gospel, there was a uh, it's called the secret or like the prayer of the offerings, which mm-hmm. we would call it today. Uh, and then a uh, preface followed by the sanctus. Right. Sounds just like a mass. And then this uh, five paragraph anaphora or Eucharistic prayer, which would be prayed over the palm branches that were at the altar. Then the people would come forward to the communion rail and they would be handed a palm at the communion rail. Mm, I like that. Very much just like mass, but it was called a dry mass. Okay. And so then the procession would start from St. Lawrence uh, outside the walls over to St. John Lateran. And when they got to St. John Lateran, Eventually, this was moved and they would leave the church and go to a different church or they would just leave the church and come back to the same church. And when the procession arrived at the doors of the new church, two cantors were inside and the doors were closed. Okay? And then the celebrant from the outside and the cantors from the inside would sing back and forth the Gloria, okay? alternating. After that, the subdeacon would take the processional cross and he would knock on the door and then the doors would be opened and the procession would go in to the uh, to the sanctuary and uh, the priest would change out of, a, uh, I guess, a cope and into a chasuble. Right? So that was apparently what it was like uh, in 1954. And again, as Father Williams says, is that there are more and more extraordinary form desires to go back to this use. Right? If, if you're a lector on Palm Sunday, are you a palm reader? <laughs> no, that's a good one. I refused. I refused to be ignored. That is a hilarious joke. Yeah, that was good, Jesse. I, I'll give you something for that. Thanks. In 1955, uh, when this was revised, that first sort of dry mass was eliminated, and there was a blessing of the palms before mass. And this would take place in the sanctuary, and the priest would go. Uh, there'd be a table, so it wouldn't be on the altar. There'd be a table set up in the sanctuary. The priest would go into the sanctuary. So again, this apparently is what you would see in the 1962 Missal. And the priest would go around the table and face the people and do the blessing. Uh, the palms would be distributed to the people, and then they would go to the other church. When they got to the other church, or when they did this sort of loop around, come back to the same church, that uh, doors being closed and the, the Gloria um, uh, would be uh, omitted, and they would uh, enter in uh, uh, kind of like we would do uh, in the in the post conciliar missal. You know what I'm hearing here, Chris, and maybe I haven't read this article, yeah. so I'm hearing yeah. a preference for uh, patristic usage over medieval usage. Am I am I wrong there? Because the medievals love to elaborate; they love to have um, rites that 
paralleled the mass, imitated the mass. They had a lot of kind of theatrical qualities, whereas the sort of soberness of the patristic era might have been something that we want to distinguish, you know, blessing from a dry mass and have some everything very, very clear. Am I, is that what I'm hearing from you? Yeah, I, I think that's this is a good example of that very thing. Right. So the there was this desire and it's a good one to uh, to restore the liturgy to the pristine condition of the fathers, which incidentally came out of the quo primum in 1570 as well. So th this is a principle that there's some something privileged about the patristic liturgy. Now, what you make of that, though, uh, differs, right? So some people made of that, well, everything after the patristic period was, you know, just these aberrations that needed to get scoured clean. And, you know, the sooner we can get rid of those, the better. That doesn't seem to appreciate the organic nature and the development uh, of, of the liturgy. So you have to, it seems to me, in the mind of the church, that uh, both of these things are important, that there is this sort of privileged period to the patristic celebration, but that, you know, each culture in each century adds its own things that uh, can't just uh, be, you know, dismissed uh, out of hand. So how to keep all of that together? Uh, see, and, and, you know, just because it, so just because it's medieval doesn't make it bad. But just because it's medieval doesn't make it good either. It has Chris, to be, you can't you can't spell medieval without evil. So yeah. I don't know. <laughs> don't go all medieval on my ass, Virgilian. <laughs> so, well, how, yeah, do you, how do you under, how do you know whether it's legitimate variety or like wh what things you you can't continue to do and what things you can you can bring forward through those processes? How do we know that? Well, I think the idea is is does the liturgy um, authentically manifest the glory of God and honor him as best as it can first. And second of all, does it uh, encourage, allow, permit uh, the faithful to access it? Those, mm -hmm. to my mind, seem to be the, the principal things. Now, who judges that? Well, the magisterium does. The church does. So, and again, people disagree about uh, about those things and see what the hermeneutic of continuity is uh, is about is to try to bring these two elements together. So you have uh, a liturgy that's um, uh, magnificent, transcendent, mysterious, glorious, uh, transcending of time, but on the other hand, uh, allows uh, the people to understand it and pray in it and receive all the graces that they can from it unto God's glory. So that's at least, uh, it seems to me, how Pope Benedict describes that in his uh, accompanying letter to Samorum Pontificum. Right. And I think there's a couple of ways to look at this. One is the liturgy as received in pick your favorite year was perfect mm -hmm. and handed down by angels from God. And every addition, every accretion was layered with symbolic meaning, and therefore anything we change, we're going to lose something. On the other hand, there is a real thing called accretions that are not helpful, right? Things that get added for not much benefit. I mean, I like the idea of using the cross to bang on the church door. I imagine that's pretty cool. I also have been to an Easter vigil uh, in the extraordinary form, and there are all those readings, right? It's the seven readings or nine readings. They're all read in Latin, and there's a very long chanted sort of uh, antiphon in between or psalm in between. Imagine that. I mean, it's, it came out to like four hours of listening to Latin and not really understanding any of the words in your own uh, language just to get through everything of the Easter Vigil. So you could see how people might just not go to that. Oh, my kids would never sit through that or it's too late at night. 
how can we make this be something that people can actually uh, partake in? Yeah. Hey, let me give you a couple more examples from Holy Thursday, Good Friday, and from uh, the vigil before we run out of time. Uh, again, so this is from Father William's article in uh, the March Out of Ramus, Holy Week's Past and Present. He talks about uh, Holy Thursday. Uh, at the end of, so this is uh, the pre-1955 uh, celebration. So the pre, so at that time, the, the faithful were not going to receive communion the next day on Good Friday. So at Holy Thursday, at that time, the priest would celebrate, uh, would consecrate rather, uh, a second host, and that host would be placed into uh, a purified and dried chalice, and the paten would be placed upside down on the uh, chalice, and the, um, I guess the like the veil, the the chalice veil would be put there and be tied uh, in the middle of the at the node, I suppose, of the chalice, and then there'd be this. Uh, procession to uh, the place of uh, reservation. Um, so interesting, right? So you have this chalice, it's purified, it's dried, the second host is placed in the chalice, the patent put upside down, the veil put over it, tied together, and that is what is reserved for the next day. Yeah, it's like a little ciborium, right? It, yeah, it yeah. is, but it's not. <laughs> mm -hmm. It is like a ciborium, but it's not a ciborium, it's a chalice. Anyway. Uh, what was changed in 1955 was that all of the baptized, properly disposed, would receive communion on uh, Good Friday. And so, therefore, with that change, the priest had to consecrate an actual ciborium uh, with hosts enough for everybody to receive the next day. And so, that's the, that was one of the changes that came out in 55, is uh, the, the whole ciborium was consecrated. And then also on uh, with the 1955 revision, the, the, uh, the, the washing of the feet was allowed as an option, which it wasn't in 1954, I gather. OK, so there's one difference from uh, Holy Thursday. Here's one uh, for good uh, Friday is uh, in 1954. Do you know what the liturgy was called? You still hear this term uh, sometimes. The Good Friday liturgy. Yeah. The Mass of the Pre-Sanctified. Oh, yeah. I've Ever heard, heard that. that term before? And I guess the, what it, what the Pre-Sanctified refers to those gifts that have been sanctified, the, the, mm -hmm. the, the bread that had been sanctified the day before. Uh, so one of the things that changed with the revision, it was no longer called Mass of the Pre-Sanctified because it wasn't a Mass. So it was called the Solemn Liturgical Action. And so what would happen in the, in the 19, uh, 1954 version would be there'd be a, a veiled cross uh, before mass on the altar. The celebrant would come in and prostrate himself before the altar. And then ministers would put an altar cloth on the altar and then put the cross back on it and put the missile there. After that uh, period of prostration, there'd be the, the reading and the collect and the passion reading from St. John and the uh, solemn intercessions. Then, after that, the priest uh, would remove his uh, outer vestments, and there'd be a violet carpet that would be placed over the lowest step, right over three steps uh, leading up mm. to the altar. I think that's Usually. the one he means. So, a violet carpet would be uh, placed there. Uh, eventually, the now the, the, about the the priest removing his vestments. This actually has made its way back into the third edition of the Roman Missal, where the priest venerates the uh, cross with ch with chasuble and shoes, actually, it says, uh, removed. But the, pre the people would then uh, come up and, let's see, they would uh, genuflect three times and bow and adore the cross, which is laying on the ground 
I must be at the front of the sanctuary. It's written here as at the front of the altar, but I think in front of the sanctuary. Okay. Have you guys ever seen that? You know, where the, the cross is lying on the ground and yeah. people venerate it there? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I apparently it comes, it comes from this. Okay. If I yeah, have to genuflect three times, it's a good thing I'm working on my lunges. <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, it is, Jesse. <laughs> but don't worry. In 1955, the revision changed some of this. Okay. Uh, so let's see. What so happened? now you can work on your, lunch, your lunches. Yeah. <laughs> I've been doing that all my life. Actually, before yes. we get to that, so still in the 1954, so eventually the, that chalice that had the host in it would be brought mm-hmm. back to, uh, to the altar. Okay? And uh, it would be unveiled and the host would be placed on a patent and wine would be poured into the chalice. It wouldn't be consecrated, though. And then they'd all be incensed. Uh, there was a prayer, the Lord's Prayer. And the priest would fraction the host, and he alone would receive the consecrated or pre-sanctified host and the chalice that uh, just had uh, wine in it. Now, in the 1955 wait, wait, revision— that's, that's kind of crazy, Chris. Yeah, so ahead. you would have a consecrated host and non-consecrated wine? Right. I agree. Sounds crazy. Uh, right. Hmm, intriguing. Yeah. Yeah, and again, I, I don't pretend to know all the reasons why this is. Is it the the semblance, uh, you know, in name and all these other rituals uh, uh, like a mass? Right. If you're going to receive the host, then you should re- receive something from the chalice. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, uh, yeah, I mean, so when I read some of this, you know, I don't know what you think about it. I, some, some of the things I read and I say, wow, we've uh, like you said, this this was really cool. <laughs> Why do we do this anymore? Uh, and not that cool is a, a litmus for what should be in the liturgy or not. Right? Jesse said, how do you decide what's in and what's out? Coolness is not cool. you know, yeah, one cool. of the. Uh, but yeah, on the one hand, you read some of this think, oh, that's really beautiful. Uh, th- that'd be remarkable to see. And other things like, boy, I, that just doesn't make any sense uh, to me, which again, it doesn't mean that it doesn't make sense in in. To somebody else, it just doesn't make sense to me. So, yeah, I don't, I don't know the reason for that. Now, is this the only version for these feasts, or was this like the equivalent of high mass, and you could have a low mass where you didn't do any of these things? It seems awfully complicated, you know, unrolling carpets and vestments on and off, and shoes, and you know, when I see these rubrics, I was like, how would you ever yeah. even know how to do this? You know? Yeah, I, uh, I don't know, but I do think some simplification of the ritual is precisely what uh, the council and the reforms had in mind. Is it, it, the complexity was not only not practical in some cases, uh, but it's just the meaning of it all is you know e- you know and even back to uh, Pius Parsh writing in what the 30s and the 40s. I mean, he's explaining mm-hmm. all this stuff that's been lost on people uh, too. In any case. So in the uh, in the revision again, they, they just bring back the the ciborium and and uh, everybody who is able is uh, receives communion. Uh, Jesse, to your point, uh, the cross is no longer laid on the ground, and you don't have to genuflect as you approach. It's held rather by acolytes uh, up a little higher so that uh, it can be venerated. So. Mm-hmm. All right, let's do one more before uh, time's up here. Some uh, interesting notes on the Easter Vigil. So before the revision in 1955, this is how the Easter Vigil was. You mentioned this before. It would take place in the morning of Holy Saturday. Um, The Paschal candle would be inside the church in the sanctuary in a stand. Outside the church, the new fire would be lit. And there was a rubric that said it had to be lit from stone. Hey, not matches, not 
What? Like, like you had to click stones together like a fire for a Boy Scout test or something? Yeah. That kind of yeah. thing? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Although I th- apparently what I gather is your Zippo lighter had a flint in it. And so that that satisfied the letter of the law. So you could uh, you could light it with with that, but not matches. Well, see, but you know, that symbolism. is the interesting thing is people could get le- when you talk about legalism, it's usually thrown around and not in an accurate way. But I suppose you could become pretty legalistic pretty quickly to say, well, the lighter has a stone in it, so we're good. Yeah. Chris, didn't you say, I, I don't know if it was on this podcast we were talking about this or somebody else, but um, I had heard one time that somebody came up with the idea of using like a magnifying glass so that the actual light from the sun began the, that fire. You know, Not, I think you know I've, heard, I've heard that, too. Uh, that has nothing to do with uh, any tradition okay. or ritual or anything like that. Uh, okay. But, yeah. Anyway, but yeah, you have to do that in the daytime. Right. Let and the, if it's a, get the fire going. A, and then at night. Yeah, if I it's think a cloudy little, day, <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. man. And so what would happen is, uh, uh, let's see, would it be a deacon would carry this, uh, this long pole called an arundo or reed, and it would have like a three-branched... I don't know, like a candelabra on the top of it. And that's what would be brought into the church, right? Because the Paschal candle is already inside the church. Right? Oh, yeah. So he carries this in, uh, the reed, and he sings each time a uh, Lumen Christi. And when he gets to the front, he places this next to the Paschal candle, and he begins to chant the exultet. Then apparently at different points during the exultet, he stops and he goes over and inserts the grains into the uh, Paschal candle. And Father Williams writes here that, in fact, it's the deacon who blesses the Paschal candle. And if you didn't have a deacon in the parish church, then the priest would do it, but he'd have to vest in a dalmatic like a deacon to bless the Paschal candle. And then the Paschal candle would be lit from a taper that was taken from that three-branched uh, reed or arundum. Okay. Um, Interesting. So uh, in the Reformed rites, uh, the Paschal candle is outside of the church. The reed is eliminated. You mentioned this about the the readings before. In the 54 version, there were 12 uh, Old Testament readings. In the 55 version, or what you would see in the 62 version, those were eliminated to four. And today we have... Seven, I think. Seven, yeah. Right? So with the, we've restored some in the uh, post-conciliar missile, but not uh, all of them. And there's a great variety of other interesting things. Father uh, Williams points out that, uh, you know, there was, you would say, Vespers as a part of uh, the Easter Vigil, right? That was a part of it. But you'd be saying it in the morning, right? So on Easter Saturday morning in 1954, you'd be celebrating the Vigil, and part of it would include Vespers for that night. So Which, in case really, you don't know, is night prayer. Correct. I mean, evening prayer. Uh, no, yeah. evening prayer. Sure. Yeah. yeah evening evening so, prayer in the morning at the Easter vigil in the morning. Crazy. Yeah. It, it, well, the, the, the time is, is a little bit uh, um, not consistent with, uh, with natural time. So anyway, uh, so part of the revision was to move the vigil uh, tonight uh, to the evening time. The, um, uh, there, there's just too much to, to go into here. But if you want to read more about this, again, go to uh, the Adoramus story by Aaron Williams, Holy Weeks Past and Present. Or again, as he'll send us to at the end of his uh, uh, story to New Liturgical Movement, there's a compendium of 1955 mm-hmm. changes. And again, it's um, I think it's interesting. To, it's 
to have the knowledge of where your rights came from is uh, helps you to celebrate with more intelligence and right. more devotion. And I think so. This, this is good. And, and I think what we can think about this, too, is to rescue ourselves from the screaming interior uh, screaming. Everything that happened to Vatican II was terrible. Ah! Right? <laughs> and to say, no. OK, we're in a kind of a romantic mode here now where the last couple of decades have been so low and bland liturgical. We're like, give us complexity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bang on doors mm-hmm. with crosses and let's change vestments. I mean, when I watched the, the priest change the vestments at the Extraordinary Form here in Florence from the Asparagus, which is in a cope, to the Mass, which is in a chasuble, it's a beautiful thing. The servers are amazing and you see all this dressing and undressing and whatnot. But you can imagine on the other side of it, lots and lots of complicated things that was so long, so complicated, 12 readings that people didn't go, or it was like this marathon maybe came out of the monastic tradition. And someone must have said, you know what? We've got to do something to make this really change the minds and hearts of people and then therefore the world. Mm-hmm. And so my question is, did they do it right? Did they do it wrong? Did they make it perfect? What, what could be reformed from that reform? But to stay in that kind of peaceful place, which is most people's intention was to do the right thing. And as time goes on, we'll find out if it was successful, perfectly successful. Well said. Thank you. All Chris. right. Well, I think it's time for a liturgy question. And we have a, an Easter question this week. So uh, I hope you guys feel comfortable answering that. So why go to the Liturgical Institute? Well, if you want to serve the church, and do liturgical studies from the heart of the church, you won't find any place quite like this. This place is faithful to the magisterium, but it's a dynamic orthodoxy, not dry. And at the same time, it not only makes the faith come alive, it also empowers you to help that be the experience for others as well. Hi, I'm Dr. Scott Hahn, and I wanna warmly recommend the Liturgical Institute for your consideration. Pray about going and studying and sharing the richness of our living tradition. Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? All right, this week we have a question from Father Stephen. And uh, Father Stephen has kind of a complicated question here, but I do believe that this is kind of a normal scenario for a lot of parishes where there's a, a, a grouping or a cluster of parishes. He says, I am assigned as associate pastor to two parishes, let's say parish A and parish B. The pastor is presiding throughout the triduum at parish A and I'm at parish B. A is larger and celebrates the full triduum. At my parish, parish B, the smaller of the two, the custom for the last several years has been to celebrate Holy Thursday and Good Friday, but not the Easter Vigil. The next liturgy at my parish, after the Good Friday liturgy, is the first Mass of Easter. Is this licit? And would it be appropriate to make a few small adaptations to parish B, my parish's Easter Sunday Mass, in order to emphasize that Easter completes the Triduum? So uh, again, I think this is a pretty normal thing uh, these days. And what what should they do uh, is what they're doing even licit currently. Yeah, we had this problem at the Liturgical Institute every year because we would be off from school the week of Holy Week. And then we'd come back, we needed a Paschal candle lit for the Easter season, but we had no priest there during the Triduum to do it. So similar kind of thing here, Chris. Yeah, I think I'll just speak in general terms that um, we've talked about this before. Triduum means um, three days, but in a sense, it's one day. 
Right. So it begins with the Mass of the Lord's Supper. And you get a sense of this from, um, remember how the Mass of the Lord's Supper ends? There's no blessing and dismissal. There's the procession with the Blessed Sacrament and that period of adoration. And then just people leave. And then when Good Friday begins, there's no sign of the cross greeting. There's just the prostration and a prayer. The priest doesn't even say, let us pray. Uh, and then how does Good Friday end? But uh, just in silence and people stay and adore the cross. And so you get a sense from the beginnings and endings of these liturgies that it's kind of one integral thing. And I think, therefore, that at least in the mind of the church, uh, she doesn't see that you're going to do part A over at St. Mary's, uh, Holy Thursday there, and then Good Friday at uh, Sacred Heart, and then, uh, you know, the, the Easter Vigil over at St. Joseph's like that. They all sort of envision, ideally, apparently the world's not ideal, but ideally that they, it's a package deal. Now, there is an obvious uh, explicit, uh, I guess, exception Sort of. It says uh, on the rubric at the beginning of, of Good Friday, it says that the bishop can give permission for a second celebration of the, the Lord's passion to take place. It doesn't say in another church, though. So I think if you're not going to do Mass of the Lord's Supper, Good Friday and the Easter Vigil in the same place, well, then you're kind of going off script. And that's why there's no answers for these other things about what to do, because it's not envisioned um, at least uh, universally in the mind of the church. So it seems that it would be more in keeping with uh, the books to either do uh, Mass of the Lord's Supper, Good Friday Liturgy and Easter Vigil at Parish B in their uh, entirety, or just do everything at Parish A. Maybe you could do only Good Friday at Parish B. In fact, it does say at the beginning of the Triduum that smaller parishes ought to join together with uh, other parishes, so they have the, the requisite number of ministers and musicians and whatnot. Now, in this COVID year, though, who knows? Maybe you need more of the space and everything's... There's still a lot of uh, different adjustments that are being made, but yeah, th those are really difficult questions. I only have one thing to say. Intellectual man crush, Chris, again. <laughs> your genius <laughs> on display. Mm. Mm. Thanks, and Dennis. he just has a regular man crush on me, just not the intellectual <laughs> part. And I love me too. You <laughs> well, have a crush Father, on you. <laughs> Father Stephen, I hope this uh, provides some clarity for you in your situation. And if you have a question for us, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com or tweet us at liturgyguys. Thank you and God bless. The Liturgy Guys is brought to you by the Liturgical Institute at the University of St. Mary of the Lake at Aremus. Society for the Renewal of the Sacred Liturgy, and the Center for Beauty and Culture at Benedictine College. Now that's a podcast. <laughs>